0: Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensru, And my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives.
1: One of the big reasons that people don't trust science is that it changes over time. And so if you see a result, um, I don't have an example off the top of my head, so I'll make one up, but like, be clear, this is a fake example. If you see, if you see a headline saying, like, um, this planet is made out of diamonds, uh, and then two months later you see another headline, never mind, that planet is actually made out of rubies, we were wrong and now we've fixed ourselves, um, people look at that and they get worried by the fact that science changes, but I think that that's one of the most comforting things about science. A true scientist is a person who's constantly questioning something, questioning the world around them and trying to get at the truth. Um, They're the type of people who will admit to making mistakes in the past if uh, they now know what the truth about the universe is.
0: Hey, everyone. Today we're joined by Moya McTeer, Moya is an astrophysicist and folklorist with a passion for world building. We talk about her work studying exoplanets and galactic dynamics. We discuss why we can trust the scientific process precisely because it makes mistakes and owns them. And Moya makes some helpful connections and analogies relating global and galactic systems to systems of oppression. Let's dive in. awesome. Um yeah, so I like to start off um asking people what gave them a deep sense of wonder when they were uh, a kid.
1: Yeah, a deep sense of wonder. Uh I'd say it definitely came from books. My uh-huh. mom when I was a baby was studying for her qualifying exams. She was doing a PhD in English and literature and so My bedtime stories as a baby were like Paradise Lost by John Milton. And she went through (laughs) like all of Shakespeare's plays and, and poems. And that gave me such a deep appreciation for reading and storytelling that I definitely carried that with me when I was young Um, I was also just like an only child living in the middle of the woods so there wasn't much else for me to do besides read and the books I ended up reading were these fantasy stories and these adventure stories and I lived in the middle of the woods so I could pretend to act out the adventures that people were going on in the stories I was reading Um, that definitely fueled my sense of wonder and whimsy that I, I still have today
0: and where where was that Where was the the woods you were in?
1: It was in southwestern Pennsylvania. It was on the outskirts of a little town called Waynesburg, which is known as a a coal mining town. Uh, It was, I think, the first county in Pennsylvania to be called for Trump in the 2016 election, like almost unanimously. Okay. (laughs) Just for some context. Yep, yep,
0: uh-huh. Um... So you are an astrophysicist as a, that's your career right now. Um, It is. What um, specifically you study exoplanets, right?
1: Yeah. um, I'm really bad at making decisions. So I'm an astrophysicist (laughs) and a folklorist. Uh, And within astrophysics, I'm both an exoplanetary science scientist and a galactic dynamicist. Um, That sounds fun. It is fun. I I really enjoy it. I I can...
0: Yes, at it, but um, I mean, it's my, yeah, it's maybe, my job. Maybe unpack <laughs> maybe unpack those a little yeah. bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. So exoplanets are planets outside of our solar system Uh, we found and confirmed about four thousand of them since 1992 was when the first one was found and galactic dynamics means how the milky way galaxy moves so i study the way that the motion of the milky way galaxy affects populations of planets how they form where they form what they Mm -hmm. look like whether or not they can host life things like that
0: that's awesome um And then as far as like, what, I guess, what's your favorite thing that you've learned studying exoplanets? (laughs) Um, like what's, what's the thing that you were like, Oh my gosh, we, we just figured this out.
1: Um, I don't, I don't know if I have those types of reactions to space anymore. (laughs) No, I feel like I've been totally desensitized (laughs) to how cool it is, Uh which is sad. Um, and it's only when I'm like high and in a place where I can actually see a lot of stars that I actually remember how cool space is
0: that's really so, interesting just because you're so it's what you do every day it's a lot it's of it's what numbers i do every and... day
1: and and i mean one of the the misnomers or about astronomy is that people who study it spend all of their time looking through telescopes or mm-hmm. actually looking at the night sky that's so far from the truth i spend all of my time looking at arrays of numbers Mm -hmm. astronomy to me is a series of matrices that i can manipulate and do calculations on all of my stuff is based on on codes on a computer and that just doesn't give the same sense of awe and fascination
0: yeah that's really interesting uh what drew you into that field in the first place You wanted to look through telescopes, huh?
1: (laughs) No, I (laughs) had zero interest in space. Um, I I went to Harvard for undergrad, and they do this really cool thing called shopping week. So instead of registering for classes ahead of time, you get to test out classes for a week before you officially sign up for the course. And I needed a fourth class to fill my schedule. I thought I kind of wanted it to be a science class because my mom always wanted me to be a scientist, but I didn't know what type of field I was interested in and one of my friends dragged me to an introductory astronomy course and uh, the professor once we got there opened the lecture by saying that if we signed up for the course we'd get free pizza every week so I signed (laughs) up for the course (laughs) and uh, you know over the course of the semester I just fell in love with the subject I thought it was really cool that I could be sitting here on earth And I could be learning about some galaxy billions of light years away. That was awesome. And uh, now it's, that was in 2014. Now it's six years later and I'm getting a PhD in it. So they did something right.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. And then tell me a little bit about the folklorist part. Is that, uh, do you study that as well? Or is that just kind of a passion?
1: I did study that. Yeah, I double majored in astro and folklore when I was in college. And (laughs) my... It was, it was so much fun. I absolutely loved it. Um, I had a few special focuses in folklore. Uh, my, my biggest one, my main focus was fictional world building. So imagining uh, fictional worlds where you can set stories or just like escape to if you feel like you want to escape from reality. Mm-hmm. I do that a lot. And uh, my other specialties were ritual body modification, things like tattoos and piercings and scarification. Uh, and then I, I I have a soft spot in my heart for Celtic myths and legends and things like fairies. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely love me some fairies. So that's what, that's what I do in folklore. But I don't get to use it much these days, uh, except for the fictional world-building stuff. Because I've tried really hard to craft a career for myself where i can insert folklore uh into science communication.
0: Mhm. And is i'm assuming that's kind of where your podcast came around. It is. Um i just got to listen to it and it is so, so unique and really really <laughs> fun and um like extra nerdy, it's awesome. Like it's just so nitty gritty. These crazy little. I like. I like that you have multiple people on at a time that are interacting it's... about totally different disciplines. Um, maybe just explain a little bit for people um, right. who haven't heard. It's called ExoLore, right?
1: Yeah, it's called ExoLore, which is a portmanteau of exoplanets and folklore. Uh, that's how I came up with it. It started as a series of workshops that I was teaching to show people that you can get inspiration for creative projects from the unlikeliest of places, science. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, it had a short career as a live show at Caveat in New York City. Uh, And then quarantine happened because of COVID. Mm. And I turned it into a podcast because I thought that people could really use some fictional worlds, some new fictional worlds that didn't already have stories associated with them. Just like an empty world where they could put their own stories if they wanted to. And so in the podcast, I invite experts and I try to make sure that it's not all scientists. Um, I try to invite artists or musicians and other people uh, onto some of the shows so that I can really get a full idea of culture. But the idea is that these experts help me imagine life on a different alien planet in each episode.
0: Yeah, it's super, uh, super fun and also I think it's, it's great just seeing people dive into their specialties that they're like, <laughs> yeah. man, no one ever wants to know this thing. And now it has a, a purpose in this fun context. Um, yeah. yeah, everyone should definitely check that out. Thanks. Um, so you, uh, are both black and a female in the sciences, which is, uh, notoriously, uh, not a great space for um, either of those uh, identities um, mm-hmm. I don't know I, w- I wanted to see um, I don't know, just hear a little bit about that experience um, it was one of those uh, worse or is it impossible to kind of extricate that?
1: Yeah I, I think the one of the whole one of the basic tenets of intersectionality is that it's kind of impossible yeah. to unlink the two um, I mean, I don't, I have a lot of horror stories that I could tell, but I also have a lot of really fantastic stories about experiences I've had in the sciences and Mm. I, I honestly don't know how they line up. Um, I'm still in the sciences for now. I still think that science scientists and the scientific process are really valuable, uh, but I am planning on leaving academia after I graduate from my PhD program. Uh, part of that is because I've found a different passion in science communication, and part of that is because I am really—I've been really disillusioned uh, about academia. I no longer think that it's like this, like sparkling ivory tower where. Uh, people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I no longer think that it's like a true meritocracy. Um, Mm -hmm. these are are things that I have learned and maybe, maybe I'm jaded, maybe it's cynicism, but you know, they're based on experiences that I've had moving through academia as a black woman. So I'm not going to argue with my own experiences of the world.
0: Mm -hmm. So you, you, you're going to move on to communicating about scientific stuff and kind of get out of, uh the weeds of some of that
1: yeah uh, but you know some of my best friends are astrophysicists and so I am definitely going to keep those relationships part of my job as a science communicator in the future will be talking about the research that they do Mm -hmm. Uh, so my leaving the field is just a way of making sure that the interactions I have with scientists are ones that I choose and not ones that I have to go through to maintain and build my career
0: Yeah. So you mentioned still kind of believing in the scientific process um, and I guess the promise of that in some sense. What I feel like there's still in our world, a lot of skepticism of uh, science, of what uh, Mm. it does. There's fear of it. Um, what, What would you say to people like, why do they not need to fear science or like, why can they trust it?
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to tell people. I think one of the one of the big reasons that people don't trust science is that it changes over Mm -hmm. time. So if you see a result, um, I don't have an example off the top of my head, so I'll make one up. But like, be clear, this is a fake example. If you see (laughs) if you see a headline saying like um, this planet is made out of diamonds. Uh, mm-hmm. And then two months later, you see another headline. Never mind. That planet is actually made out of rubies. We were wrong. And now we've fixed ourselves. Yeah. Um, people look at that and they get worried by the fact that science changes. But I think that that's one of the most comforting things about science. A true scientist is a person who's constantly questioning something, mm-hmm. questioning the world around them and trying to get at the truth. Um, they're the type of people who will admit to making mistakes in the past if uh they now know what the truth about the universe is um and i think that's the the reason that people fear science now i think is honestly the reason that people should trust it Mm -hmm. so much more than they do
0: yeah that's a cool way of thinking about it i i've never heard it framed as you know kind of the making mistakes um Cause usually it's like framed as, which I think is true too, but it's framed as, you know, we're learning more, we're learning more mm-hmm. and, but actually framing it in that sense of like the people who you should trust, uh, in general are the people who admit to making mistakes. Right. And yeah. learn from it and do grow. Um, and science as a, as a discipline is built on doing that. It's built on being like, Oh, we were wrong.
1: Yeah, we were wrong. Good science and, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I was working on a project a few years ago where I thought I had this amazing result. I thought I had found a link between the speed of a star and its ability to host planets. Um, and instead of publishing that result right away, I spent two months trying to prove myself wrong, mm. talking to people who had different opinions, talking to people who had access to different types of data and different realms of expertise. And in doing that, I realized that I was wrong. And my result was just a function of some systematic bias in a in a telescope whose data I was using. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a really important step in the scientific method that doesn't get... Hot when you're when you first learn about the scientific method in like fifth grade or whatever uh, but it's a step that the best scientists use mm.
0: yeah that's that's got to be super frustrating though uh, and not uh you know the most exciting option to debunk your own work that you're really excited about but yeah no
1: no it's not it feels pretty crappy um, another thing that feels pretty crappy about being a scientist, if you look at like the basics of what being a scientist means, is that you, a professional scientist is someone who's admitting that they're a professional idiot, like it's a, a professional non-knower of things, because mm. <laughs> um, you're constantly just trying to answer questions that you don't know the answer to, um, and that's that can be disheartening if you you know, don't have the best outlook on it.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really great though. Just, (laughs) I don't know. Like, it's like, uh, you're constantly having to, I I think the process of doing that, like you create room for wonder, like you create, you're able to be curious. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's something there's some, there's some connection there with, and part of the reason I I start out talking about wonder is because, I think without wonder, without curiosity, um, so much of the world becomes very bleak and, or at least you, you become closed off to the actual experience of the world because you, Mm -hmm. you've, you've extracted all of it and it's just, it's right there for you to think, you know what everything is and and never actually experience it.
1: Sounds like you have the heart of a scientist.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I did want to be a Marine biologist when I was a child. So, that was mostly because I want to hang out with dolphins, I think. I don't know. Fair. I feel like that's pro. Is that a common... Maybe that's not a common thing for mm-hmm. kids to want to be. I don't know. That's what I... And also a paleontologist when I was younger, so... Mm. Dinosaurs um, are rad.
1: They are yeah. very
0: rad. I know people who who feel like studying space is... Like, why are we, why are we doing that? It, uh, mm-hmm. We have problems on Earth. Um, people want to defund NASA. And... Um, what do you think the good is in um, in studying space?
1: Yeah, there's so much good for so many different reasons. Um, the most fundamental reason to study space is that not all knowledge seeking has to be practical. Uh, sometimes it's, it's a beautiful human action to just seek knowledge for knowledge's sake. And I think that that's one of the most beautiful things about astronomy. Uh, for the most part, when I'm doing my research, I don't have to worry about how it's going to be applied here on Earth. I don't have to worry about whether or not it can be used to cure cancer mm-hmm. or um, do some terrible militaristic thing, although there definitely is a pretty troublesome connection between astronomy and the military when you get to instrumentation side of things. But um, I like to think of astronomy research as just like very curious and just like it's fundamental curiosity. Um, But there also have been a lot of really practical byproducts of astronomy research. Things like the medical clean room exist because An astronomer didn't want his telescope to get dusty and so he figured out a way to uh, sterilize Mm. an environment um, that people use in operating rooms today or things like wi-fi um, the internet gps uh, different techniques that are used to find oil deposits underground all of those are possible because of technology and knowledge that was originally developed for and by astronomers
0: that's very interesting. I didn't know any of that. Um, yeah, I, I think that's great. The idea that uh, I don't—I definitely believe that there's a a value in in the study alone. Like it, there is beauty in that. I like that you tied that to that. Um, yeah, there's an enriching of the human experience as we mm-hmm. understand our place and our connection to everything else.
1: Um, yeah.
0: As far as exoplanets um, I I'm curious how much um, we can actually know about them because I know we can do like uh, spectroscopy is that the right way to say it um, yeah about stars spectroscopy, and stuff yeah. S- spectroscopy alright
1: uh, it's a tongue
0: twister so we can learn we can learn about what elements stars are made out of by examining the light that comes from them um, mm-hmm. but can we not do that for exoplanets because they're too too dim to uh like there's not enough yeah, light too, coming off
1: too dim too small uh-huh. uh, there are some planets where you can learn about the composition of their atmosphere so these are planets that are really close to their stars and are really puffy uh in terms of their atmosphere astronomers call them hot jupiters because so they are jupiters that are just much closer to their stars than hmm. the jupiter on our own solar system And so this is a a method called transmission spectroscopy, which was developed in the early 2000s. And now with telescopes like James Webb, who will hopefully be launching soon, uh, we will have the ability to actually look in detail at the atmospheres of some of these planets. Um, And the way that works is if you look at the light of the star, you can tell what elements, what molecules are in the star. As the light from that star passes through the planet's atmosphere, some of that light gets absorbed by the molecules and other particles in Mm. the planet's atmosphere. Got it. And you only see the stuff that gets to pass through. And so astronomers can then do this really cool kind of reverse engineering to figure out what elements or what molecules must exist in the planet's atmosphere.
0: That's awesome. Hey everyone. If you're already supporting the show through Patreon, thank you so very much. If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at a clip of a lyric breakdown episode. So as a musician, you're out a lot. Um the worst position is like being in the military, which uh someone yeah, wrote, yeah, it, wrote yeah, in yeah. about too. They'd said it's been really helpful for us. Like yeah. my husband's gone, you know, six to eight months in a row. That's really oftentimes rough. actually on the sea. Yeah. This
1: is this is written for Navy families. <laughs> but the
0: thing that actually made me think about the connection in general to the whaler was it was like uh so when we were writing Visu, which was right before the alchemy index it was like into a lot of like that vc originally started as this kind of oceanic themed record or whatever mm-hmm. and then it went a little broader but <clears throat> we were all thinking in those terms and then doing the water record this thing very loud bubbles yeah. um <laughs> doing the water record you know it was like building up that too but so i'd read like uh movie dick mm-hmm the whalers they'd be they were gone until they filled the ship with whale oil which could be like three four years crazy So just whaling around the world until they're full yeah (laughs) then they finally come back so that that was just insane to think about Mm. missing four straight years of your family if you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Carry the Fire Pod. All right, let's get back to the show. So, with your world building stuff, um, so you've got the the folklore side, and you've got the your scientific background I guess I'm curious partially like what else you like when you think about world building are you mostly thinking about like writing books like people writing books or is it just all over the place and maybe I also who are some of your favorite favorite world builders
1: oh that's gonna be hard to answer uh so it's it's definitely more than just books world building is used in so much media that people don't necessarily think about. Um, so it's it's books, movies, TV shows, and games um, that are obviously fantastical in nature. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at World of Thrones, uh, or if you look at Futurama, or other shows that so obviously deviate from our own reality, it's clear that there's some world-building going on there. Mm-hmm. But even things that are closer to historical fiction. Um, you know, I, I recently started watching Harlots uh, on Amazon Prime. And, like, that's historical fiction. There's definitely stuff that's based on real things that happened here on Earth. But it's its its own form of world building to craft that type of environment that most people, even back then, didn't get to see mm-hmm. and witness Um and that people these days have no chance to witness uh so that's that's a type of world building um world building is involved in like immersive experiences that happen here on earth where you're trying to craft and manipulate the way that people uh experience and interact with the world around them even if there aren't any fantastical or super advanced sci-fi elements to -hmm. the experience um that was maybe super long-winded um (laughs) that's great about my favorite world builders i think neil gaiman is Mm -hmm. just amazingly talented as a writer i think sarah mass is amazingly talented as more of a young adult writer uh she does a lot of stuff with fairies i love that (laughs) okay um people who aren't Writers, because I could give you a super long list of authors, but I'd like to be more expansive. Um, I think Pokemon is fantastic world building, uh, both as, as
0: a the whole the whole system of it.
1: Yeah, the whole system of it, even the fact that there are different iterations of Mm -hmm. the universe. uh, If you start looking at the games, uh, there are multiple generations of Pokemon. Um, The different decisions that go into whether or not the different generations of Pokemon interact with each other. um, I think that is such a beautifully crafted world. My partner was playing through Pokemon Sword and Shield, and I'm horrible at video games, I just don't have the hand-eye coordination, (laughs) but I would sit and just watch the game play because it's so beautiful not just the Pokemon and like the evolution of the Pokemon and the stories of the legendary Pokemon, but like the physical environment I think is really beautiful and how, um, you can go from forest to desert to ocean and how Mm. they've arranged that I think is really awesome. Um, other really well-built worlds. I'm trying to think of other media, uh, formats.
0: Are you familiar with Brandon Sanderson at all?
1: People have told me a lot about Sanderson. Um, I hear that he has a really interesting magic system.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's. I think the way he ties it to his world building in general is really interesting, Um, mm -hmm. and the way he kind of uh, slowly lets you into it, like you you Mm -hmm. feel the process of exploring it. Um, Yeah, I'm curious if you're into any uh, like really hard sci fi.
1: Because no. I, I feel
0: like no. Because I feel like <laughs> no. there's something interesting about the what you're doing on the, the show, the podcast where you're thinking through these things of like how would this actually work? And mm-hmm. you know, obviously in a short uh, podcast, you're not getting into all the nitty gritty, but you are, you know, thinking about the physics of how whatever, like I listened to the one with the, the volcanoes and mm. about how would the turtles shells not dissolve in the sea? And like, um, I don't know. I'm not a huge hard sci-fi, uh, guy, but I, I appreciate, I guess, like, um, the exactitude that they're trying to have with their, their world mm-hmm. building and, and seeing that stuff through.
1: Yeah. I I mean, there are definitely parts of, I can appreciate objectively how much skill goes into, well-done sci-fi and -hmm. well-done hard sci-fi um the issue i take with a lot of it is just a personal one um so much of it is space-based and so if i read or somehow consume hard sci-fi it can feel like work uh if it's based Um, in space um oh and and yeah
0: because you're probably you know more than the author does about yeah space and then (laughs) it's not quite as hard as maybe it should be in your well no some annoyed. of
1: some of it is incredibly accurate mm-hmm. um the Martian was very accurate it's just from the from an engineering standpoint it's just when I am reading something for enjoyment I'm doing it just for enjoyment I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to work mm. that's interesting yeah
0: yeah <laughs> you brought up like st- in that, that first episode on your podcast, you, you started talking about standards of beauty on a different planet, uh, mm-hmm. as far as like uh, sexual selection and stuff, which I thought was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And, but then it, it, I, I also like to think about, so we do have those kind of evolutionary um, influences in, in what we see as beautiful, especially in that framework. But then we also... Mm-hmm. Um, we find a sunset beautiful or we find space mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh, and I'm curious what you think about that. Like why, I don't know why, why does our sense of beauty like, uh, expand past those things that seem so directly tied to, right. to evolution.
1: Um, so I actually talked about this in another episode of, of Exolore. um, I had a clinical psychologist on and we started talking not about beauty standards in terms of sexual selection, but like what type of art would this Mm -hmm. life form be really interested in? What would they find beautiful? And he brought it back to evolution saying that a lot of the things we find beautiful are, uh, related to things that helped us survive in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, things like a, a beautiful, nature scene and outdoor scene uh, were because they provided resources and food and things that we could use to survive. Uh, So that's like a super clinical way of looking at it um, based on evolution. But there's also just so much randomness Mm -hmm. involved in what we think is beautiful. Uh, It's based on different experiences you've had in your past, at least on the individual level, what I think of as really beautiful might be very different from what you think of as beautiful. And that's based on our experiences and our genetics. Um, but I think it's... I feel kind of bad sometimes in the XLR episodes because I'm making these sweeping generaliz- generalizations mm-hmm. and I don't have the time uh, to really get into... Or, and it's also just not, not possible to get into individual ideas of of what might be beautiful or what foods might taste good or what music might sound interesting things like that
0: yeah i mean you could talk for <laughs> for days if you were actually going <laughs> to dig into uh, all those little facets mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know i always find that uh, it, maybe it's just uh, a matter of complexity like over time mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. like i if i think about a desert being beautiful like i strictly evolutionarily like i feel like the desert should not be beautiful at all to me because it, it means right. i'm gonna die uh there's no water out there um although if you have I'm,
1: experiences in your past that don't necessarily think of don't make you think that death is necessarily a bad thing mm.
0: yeah, that's, that's where the interesting individual that, experiences come in yeah the way that our aesthetic uh Proclivities are shaped over time by all this, and that's, yeah, that's. I like really that cool.
1: aesthetic proclivities. That's <laughs> nice.
0: This is somewhat open ended, and feel free to um, <laughs> not engage if it feels uh, just overwhelming at the, at the moment. But we're you know in the middle of uh, a lot of public discourse about um, race and systemic racism in our country. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned before it made me kind of connect the dots of you had a, um, as you were you know trying to, to study the exoplanets, you you found that something that you thought was real data was actually this systemic kind of bias, um, mm-hmm. and I'm curious, do you, um, I don't know, is there a way to, to help people understand? That you found like personally uh the systemic bias in our uh structures in in the u.s um i feel like we're immune to being able to think like this as a as a country um because we're so individualistic it's very hard mm. for us to um zoom out and actually see the connections between all these things that was super ridiculously broad but um <laughs> if there's anything there you want to no, I, I think fun. it is
1: really hard for people to look outside their own personal universe and bubble to see things on big enough scales where you can actually notice the systemic biases, um, especially if they don't personally affect you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a small rural town. Um, it was really poor and really conservative and you know people didn't have the best educations Um and if you grow up in that type of environment, you don't get to see the types of systemic racism that people are now spending a lot of time talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I guess, people have been talking about it, but now it's getting a lot yes. of attention. Um and So if you don't see it, if you're not taught about it when you're young and you don't f- experience it personally, you're not going to spend time thinking about it. You're not going to do the work to expand your, your your personal bubble to see things on those scales. i I think this is one of the the things that I try to incorporate into my science communication work. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of different ways that I could have responded to your question, by the way, but I feel like this is the only way where I can make like a like an actual difference because okay. there are better people than me to talk about what policy changes can be made and yeah, like I, statistics.
0: I'm, I'm interested in kind of where it's connecting for you. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but for me as a science communicator and as an astrophysicist, um, I think that teaching people about space and expanding their horizons to something that is literally outside mm. of our planet, uh, getting them to think on those big scales is getting them one step closer to thinking about these huge systemic problems. Um, uh, If you ask an astronaut how going to space has changed them, so many will answer that seeing all of Earth at once, Mm -hmm. being able to have this pale blue dot experience, like there's even a term for it, uh, helps them realize how wrong they were to think about their own personal life as being as as important as they thought it was like they Mm. they realized that their personal experiences obviously weren't the center of the universe and if we if i can get more people to think on those more astronomical scales uh, and then turn back around to put their life in that type of context uh, i think that it, it can help a lot
0: yeah and i think even yeah there's so many things that that perspective can help uh I mean a lot of people will connect that to climate change like seeing Mm -hmm. like oh we're all on this little thing and that's our that's our only little thing and we gotta take care of it um man I can see someone being like oh yeah yeah and this should make us realize that like almost take it to the you know the colorblind kind of thing though it's like oh Oh. we're all just like one
1: yeah no don't do that (laughs) (laughs) please don't do that yeah yeah um, so I, I think that it getting really, really practical, I think the, the reason that having such an astronomical view on things helps is that it just gives you so many examples of large systems that mm-hmm. exist, even though you're not personally aware of it in your day to day life. Things like how weather moves around the planet. If you're up in space and you can actually see hurricanes move mm-hmm um that gives you a sense of how there can be these systems that's that you helpful. just aren't personally aware of um
0: rather than it's just raining on me right now exactly like, that's a very localized thing but it's connected to something that's very not localized
1: right yeah mm-hmm. so if you are a person who hasn't experienced racism personally uh if you can like make this analogy in your brain to the weather systems um it'll help you. I think it'll better prime you for the types of conversations around systemic racism, uh, that can help you realize that like, just because you don't experience it doesn't mean other people don't.
0: Yeah. That's super helpful. I like that a lot. This is random, but are you, uh, into D and D? Yes. Okay.
1: I love it.
0: Okay. I, I've just recently, uh, got into, it. I never knew anyone growing up who played and, um, mm-hmm. So now I'm DMing a couple of things for uh, family and close awesome. friends, and uh, my kids, and um, yeah. But it, when when I saw that you were doing the kind of whole world building thing, the thing that made me pretty sure you're you're into D anD D was your uh, your Patreon tiers. <laughs> it's like centaur and something else. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, she plays. Do you world build for that? Do you like create your own? Places to I, have campaigns?
1: I haven't yet, but I would love to. My dream for Exolore is to continue having it as a podcast. And then when the world opens up again, I can go back to the live show at Caveat. Uh, but the live version is just a D&D session set in the most recent world from a, an Exolore episode. Um, I would almost like Harmon Quest style, uh-huh. but a different world every time. Uh, that would that would be so much fun. Right. Well, I
0: think I will volunteer to to come on there if you'll have me. Cool. Cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that's such that's a really great idea. It's very fun.
1: Before we leave D and D um I I'm like a a second generation D and D player. Um my mom played and growing up she worked at a Girl Scout camp. Uh and the tradition at Girl Scout camps is that you have a camp name. So my mom's camp name was the name of her D and D character. It was mm-hmm. Kina. Um and when I first started playing D D in college, I named my D character Kina after my mom's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's I I love the idea that like you play with your kids and um, you know, I like my mom taught me her love of D D, so I, I like the idea of it carrying down through generations.
0: It's super cool. Um it's cool that it's it's uh kind of having its renaissance right now um yeah I, I feel like the whole idea of it was just very misunderstood in the larger culture for a long time and mm-hmm. um it's it's fantastic i love it i'm curious do you have any uh consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you
1: i read a lot i read maybe too much <laughs> <laughs> Uh what's
0: like what's your what's do you have like a time of day that you read all the time or is it just whatever
1: yeah I have it I always read before bed uh, like right before I fall asleep and every once in a while I get into these stages where I just won't work for a week I'd say this happens like once a season, or like maybe every other month. I'll just stop working for a week and read like an entire series of books. <laughs> just go through it. Um, there was a, a particularly bad season <laughs> in my life where, um, I was in my second year of grad school and I was really, really depressed and I just didn't want to live in reality anymore and so I I read for like two weeks straight and he would come home and see that I was in the same position on the couch that I was in when he left to go to work that morning. And he would just be like, Oh, it's another reading day. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to take care of dinner. <laughs> it was oh, that's uh, awesome. so, yeah. Um He's pretty amazing, but uh, yeah. Reading is the only constant in my life. Like not even, like skincare or or hair care or like exercise regimens, like reading is really the only thing I can think of that I have consistently done since I was a kid.
0: And do you, when you're doing um, like reading every night, do you mix up the kind of stuff you're reading, or is it always kind of more fantasy type stuff?
1: It's it's pretty much always fantasy, uh, but there are a lot of different types of fantasies, so I I make sure to switch that up.
0: You gotta read Sanderson. <laughs>
1: It is on the list. Uh, the list is long, but it it does include Sanderson.
0: He's fun. Um have you read I just started um the uh Earthsea cycle. Have you mm.
1: read that? Yeah, when I was younger.
0: Um, I really like it. Uh it's very opposite of Brandon Sanderson. It's much simpler, but it's uh <laughs> it feels like uh someone's telling you a story, like rather than you're reading this really involved intense book it sounds like it sounds Mm -hmm. like someone's sitting in a fire and and telling you you know this tale which i dig
1: it's a nice feeling
0: and what are some of the ways that you regularly seek out or encounter beauty in your life besides books
1: besides books (laughs) um it's a lot easier now that I have escaped New York, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I miss New York terribly. I can't wait to go back, but uh, i've I've come to Maine for the duration of lockdown. and it's so much easier for me to get back into nature. Uh, mm. and growing up in the middle of the woods, that was some of my first experiences with beauty, things that are like like just like the sight of a bumblebee flying especially now that I'm a scientist and I know how just like impossible it should be that they Mm -hmm. fly. Um, Or there are these flowers that bloomed just a few days ago outside of the house. And like, they are these bright orange flowers and I had never seen that color in nature before. And that was Mm -hmm. just like a really um, beautiful experience to have uh, for the first time. So yeah, I, I try to seek out beauty in nature whenever I can. Uh, Back in New York, I would try to seek out beauty by people watching, Mm -hmm. just like seeing pure, genuine human interactions where you least expect it. I think people imagine that New York City is this very cold place where people are super rude. Um, But if you live in new york and you like if you take the subway you can see people like offering their seat yeah there there are jerks of course but like every once in a while you get to witness this just like pure beautiful human uh one-on-one interaction and i i live for those moments when i'm back in the city
0: that's cool yeah i feel like people kind of go either way on when they're in the big city like it they take that opportunity and realize how much everyone's connected and how much Mm -hmm. we have in common and all these beautiful things, or they're just turned off to all the, all the people, um, or, or they scapegoat certain kinds of people or whatever. Um, what, what part of New York do you live in? Uh,
1: I live on the Upper West side of Manhattan.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, do you hang out in the park a lot there or no?
1: I do. Yeah. Um, I even have a favorite tree. Oh, in the well, park cool. just go <laughs> sit under it i do oh, i mean uh when it's not super crowded yeah because it, it's a really good tree so i imagine if <laughs> it's like, a lot of people's favorite more, tree if if more people took the time to think about whether or not they had a favorite tree a lot of people would notice that that is their favorite tree
0: <laughs> that's awesome um yeah yeah i love hanging out in the park i just heard some terrible history of it the other day which was a bummer but i still yeah like, seneca uh, village yeah
1: yeah
0: i still like being there and well this is just a recommendation at this point but have you been to um a restaurant called wild air no okay you gotta go there's friends of okay. mine um run it wild air and contra they're like around the corner from each other in wild. east village yeah wild what, air what type one, of food? one word just, it's just great. Like, it's, um, it's cool. It's
1: good food. Great food. Very, okay. <laughs> very
0: good food. Not like a sushi environment, though. It's like,
1: mm-hmm. it
0: feels like it's like nice but casual. Um, nice and just focus on good ingredients and good cooking. It, it's, it's so that. good. And then Contra is their other spot. They're like kind of connected. And the Contra's a price fix kind of one. But,
1: um,
0: mm. yeah, they're friends and I've had them on the pod too. But they, I recommend it to everyone who's in new york because it's it's so good it's a good spot check it out well thank you so so much for um taking the time uh i hope people will check out exolore and uh is there anywhere else they should uh follow what's going on with you
1: uh i am maybe too active on twitter uh so you can follow me there go astro mo <laughs> is my handle um if i I'm too lazy to post any updates on my website. You're sure to find it on Twitter. All
0: right. And th- do you pronounce your name uh, Moya? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks again and uh yeah, I wish you the best and uh I'll be waiting for my uh, invitation for uh <laughs> Xolor D&D.
1: Cool. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Cheers. Thanks so much. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at carrythefirepod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers. Adam Collins, Amy Armstrong, Andrew Diaz, Brianna Webb, Brian Weisbecker, Cameron Lane, Colin Hawthorne, Denise Sugita, David Cobb, Drew Perra, Eric Gonzalez, Gabe Munes Gary Jilke, Hamsa Babahani, Jeremy Robinson... Jess Card, John Bucken, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luca Leva, Luis Rivera, Luis Enriquez, Marco Padilla, Mark Francis, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Michael Maitland, Miguel Pina Broa, Nathaniel Bailey, Ron Alberca, Ryan Cornelius, Samantha Simmons, Sean Weidmeyer, Stephen Sausser, Susanna Coleman, Ted Reiser, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Deweyne, and William Galdemez. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.